0: Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. We thank our witnesses for being here and um, all the senators who are here and those who will come. I want to, I hope your experiences today can be informative as we take stock of our efforts against ISIS. Last month, President Trump asked for a new plan to defeat ISIS. The preliminary draft should be completed by the end of this month. While the executive branch is looking at new options, I think it's a good time for us to take a look at what has been accomplished, what remains to be done, and what decisions need to be made. As the battle for Mosul continues and the preparations for Raqqa begin, hope we can get your perspective on what additional steps to defeat ISIS could look like and with whom we should partner. The fight in Iraq appears to remain on course, but huge questions remain about the future of American influence and what role Iran will play in the post-ISIS Iraq. Unfortunately, in Syria, the problem has only gotten harder with time, and now the Trump administration is faced with choosing the least bad option. One decision they must make is who to involve in the military campaign. Who actually clears Raqqa could have wide-ranging strategic consequences whether it's the Kurds, Kurdish-supported Arabs, Turkey and the Syrian opposition, or the Assad regime and its allies. I criticize the previous administration for a glaring disparity between their anti-ISIS efforts and their diplomatic efforts to end the Syrian civil war. I would appreciate your perspectives on the logic that defeating ISIS without a political solution in Syria will simply lead to another ISIS and whether or not it's possible to link the two strategies. Finally, it's worth noting that the Department of Defense has tasked as the lead agency in developing this strategy. It's probably a good moment for us to examine the structure the administration is using to lead the coalition and the role of the State Department. With that, I'd like to thank you again for appearing before the committee, and I look forward to your testimony and turn to our distinguished ranking member,
1: Ben Cardin. Well, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for calling this hearing to me. This is an extremely urgent subject for the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the United States Senate, and the United States. So I welcome our two witnesses, and I look forward to a robust discussion. President Trump now faces a key decision point on how he will direct the fight against ISIL. Over the past two weeks, we have all had a chance to see how President Trump handles national security issues. I certainly hope that the risky and chaotic start we have just seen on how he handled the Muslim ban is not an indicator as how he will handle ISIL. Last week, we saw how he abandoned our allies like Australia and appeased our enemies like Russia. It also remains totally unclear how Mr. Trump's never-ending desire to make nice with the Russians, even after they attacked our democratic system, will influence his plans in Syria. And President Trump's abandonment of our core American value with his Muslim ban will also alienate the Muslim allies we need to work with the Middle East to fight ISIL. Any path forward fighting ISIL brings risks. Increasing U.S. boots on the ground, directing U.S. troops to get closer to the fight, or changing the rules of engagement demand an assessment of the risk to the U.S. forces and the civilians living inside ISIS territory. Arming new groups like YPG in Syria must be balanced against Turkish concerns and the desire end uh, and state in Syria. Changing the deepened U.S. involvement in the fight against ISIS must be weighed against what we know from the past experience. U.S. forces on their own in this part of the world only inflame resentment and become the target of violent extremists. There is no sustainable win against ISIS without a long-term political solution. That means a political settlement that ends the civil war in Syria and removes Bashar al Assad and ensures that the Iraq has a government that's inclusive, accountable and reflective of its citizens' need. Mr. Chairman, every day we hear more about what's happening in Syria. Today's report by Amnesty International that up to 13,000 people have been executed in a prison north of Damascus in a hidden campaign authorized at the highest levels of the Assad regime is beyond disturbing. This stomach-turning report is a must-read for those in the Trump administration who want to move forward on counterterrorism cooperation with Russia against ISIL. Russia's military intervention was explicit to save their man in Damascus, Mr. Bashar al-Assad. This amounts to war crimes and we cannot be complicit in covering up accountability for war crimes. On January 28th, President Trump issued a National Security Presidential Memorandum 3, directing the Department of Defense to develop a new plan to defeat ISIS. This directive instructed the Defense Department, as the Chairman pointed out, to collaborate across the U.S. government, including the State Department, Treasury Department, and Intelligence Community. This should alarm members of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee because a plan to defeat ISIS that's viewed through, through primarily a military lens is not going to succeed. We need to lead with a solution to the problem, not just a military solution. If we learn anything from the experience of the last decade, it is that military fight is not even half of the battle. Long-term sustainable ends to conflict demand political agreements, international donors, stabilization activities, reconciliation initiatives, development expertise, accountable local leadership, and above all, patience, consistent diplomacy, and political engagement. The State Department must be the, leading, the leader in our counter-ISIS strategy. To counter-ISIS strategy carried out by President Obama, Including military force as one line of effort is a critical line to our effort to ensure, but just one element in the holistic approach. Equally important are cutting off terror funding, stopping foreign fighter flows, countering ISIS propaganda and online recruitment, and providing humanitarian assistance to the innocent civilians in neighboring countries impacted by ISIS ISIS depravity and violence. Evidence by this line of effort and more by President Klump Trump has clearly inherited the most capable, experienced people at the State Department. I hope he uses them. We have the experts there that can help us determine the long-term strategy. We've made progress in defeating ISIS. We've taken back territory. We have been able to, to deal with circumstances on the ground with the local forces. We need to build on that and build on the expertise that we've already developed within our State Department to make this work. But one thing is clear to me, and that is, we have to work with our allies. I was pleased to see yesterday that President Trump pulled back on his hostility towards NATO. That was a good sign. But threatening uh, the relevancy of the United Nations or embarrassing the President of Mexico or abruptly cutting short a phone call with uh, the Prime Minister of Australia will only isolate America and our ability to really defeat ISIS through the type of partnerships that we need globally. So I hope that we can address these issues in a partnership, working with our allies. Australia, by the way, is one of our closest allies in our war against ISIS. Uh, And I hope that we can figure out a way in which this committee can weigh in. One thing is clear to me. The Muslim Ban is a recruitment tool that'll be used that will help hurt our chances of defeating ISIS. And no, Mr. President, this is not like some other proposal that's been made by previous administrations. This is much more comprehensive and has clearly been interpreted and is based upon the religion of the individuals. And that alienates over 1.7 million Muslims globally and countries working with us in the coalition. This ban needs to end and the Congress needs to speak and I hope this hearing will be the beginning of our debate here in this committee as to how we can help in regards to our fight against ISIS, are you finished? Yes.
0: Um, I do want to uh, agree on the thirteen thousand people that supposedly have been hung. I think all of us have seen the photographs that Caesar presented here that the Holocaust Museum. Um, put on display. I know you and I were there for that ceremony. and I I do hope that at the end of this we don't forget we've got a major war criminal on our hands in Syria. And As we move through this, um, uh, he has got to be punished. Um, He has got to be brought to trial. He has got to be dealt with in the most appropriate way, so I couldn't agree more. I will say that uh, last week in meeting with uh, General Flynn, the National Security Advisor. I do think that Mattis and Tillerson have made a combine that they're, neither one of them are going to come forward with plans that the two of them have not agreed to. But I agree that uh, uh, the State Department certainly needs to be involved with this. So, with that, let me uh, introduce our distinguished uh, witnesses. Our first witness is the Honorable James Jeffrey, currently with the Washington Institute. Ambassador Jeffrey previously serves as the ambassador to Iraq, the ambassador to Turkey, and the deputy national security advisor, security advisor to President George W. Bush. We thank you so much for being here. Our second witness today is Mr. Jeremy, Jeremy Bash, a managing director at Beacon Global Technologies, a former chief of staff to Leon Panetta, and U.S. defense at the U.S. De- Department of Defense and the CIA. We want to thank you both for being here. I think you both have done this before many times. Your written testimony without uh, objection will be entered into the record, and you can summarize in about five minutes. That would be great. We look forward to questions. And again, in the order introduced, if you would begin, I'd appreciate it, Ambassador.
2: Uh, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Ranking Member, first of all, uh, and members of the Committee, thank you very much for having us here today. Uh, This is a really important and crucial issue. Uh, As you said, our written comments are uh, submitted to the record. I'll try to summarize them, but frankly, the two of you in your opening statements hit on most of my uh, top points. Number one, the President's uh, directive to uh, move very quickly on ISIS with the goal of defeating it is exactly the right strategy. Number two, this has to be done in conjunction State Department and Uh, Defense Department because the military operation is not the only operation. Uh, We will defeat ISIS as a state. We will not eliminate it completely uh, for the same reason we haven't eliminated al-Qaeda completely. But getting rid of it as a state, as a caliphate, is an extremely important step. Uh, But how we do this politically, as you said, in relation to Syria, to Iran, which is possibly an even greater danger in the region, with Russia now involved in the uh, region, uh, is crucially important. This is a watershed in the region as we move to eliminate uh, Raqqa and Mosul, equivalent probably to nothing we've seen since the surge a decade ago. Let's start first on the battle that we have before us because it's not won yet. Uh, Mosul is slowly being... um, liberated from ISIS and that will eliminate ISIS essentially from Iraq other than some uh, minor terrorist groups. And the issue there will be to keep it from coming back as it came back again after uh, its predecessor was defeated in uh, in 2008 to 2010. Uh, The Raqqa battle is the bigger battle and uh, as the chairman said, there are several options. Using the uh, Kurdish YPG Uh, which was what the Obama administration did, has advantages. The problem is it doesn't have the heavy weapons. Uh, It is violently opposed by Turkey, and Turkey is essential to this battle. It's airfields, it's logistics, it's support. Turkey actually has troops in the fight against ISIS. Uh, So I'm very concerned about going forward without getting the Turks on board. That's possible as someone who spent nine years in Turkey, but it won't be possible until after the early April referendum in Turkey about the presidency. For various internal reasons, uh, President Erdogan has to take a very tough line on the Kurds until that time. He's been more flexible in the uh, past. I think he can be flexible if he's given a role in Raqqa in the future, so I hope we can look to that. Uh, Inviting the Russians, Syrians, and uh, Iranians in to be our allies in this fight for a dozen reasons, including some you've just cited, is a very bad idea. Uh, The Russian military capabilities, frankly, apart from carpet bombing civilians, are not impressive uh, in this campaign so far. And uh, the Iranians and Syrians are feared and hated by the people of eastern Syria. Uh, So we have to be very, very careful about that. But what's going to happen after we inevitably take Raqqa? First of all, speed is important and that's why I would urge Uh, the Senate and the administration to consider upping significantly the American enablers we have, advisors, artillery, attack helicopters, uh, but also consider at least some uh, ground forces, uh, not just ours but from other NATO forces in the uh, battalion level, a few uh, thousand people at most, to spearhead the attack because from what I've seen in the battle in Mosul and the Turks in the battle for al-Bab, this is gonna be very tough without elite forces. What happens on the day after? First of all, there's immediate issues of providing relief to the people, ensuring that one group doesn't go after the other group. But so far, surprisingly, from what all I've seen in the Middle East, in Iraq and to some degree in Syria, that's gone okay. It's the longer term we have to watch. We need to be present in Syria and the battle against uh, ISIS gives us an opportunity to do so. We have two alliances we need to keep, uh, steady. First, the Turks, who have essentially a no-fly safe zone in the north of uh, Syria, and the Kurds in Rojava. If we can work out a way between the two, uh, we'll have a presence uh, there, and we can use that to leverage uh, pressure on the Syrian government and on the Russians to maintain the Astana ceasefire, which is absolutely uh, critical and will be opposed by Assad and, frankly, the Iranians who want a total victory in Syria, which is destabilizing for the whole region. The other thing is, um, soon the battle in Iraq is over. We should learn from what happened in 2014, when ISIS returned, that it is a mistake for us to get out of that country. Iraq is crucial, not only to uh, prevent Sunni extremism, uh, but also as, I won't say a buffer, but as a balancing country to Iran, and that requires some sort of American presence, including at least um, minimal American military training presence, and I hope this time we can do it. Thank you very much, sir.
3: Mr. Bash. Mr. Chairman, uh, distinguished ranking member, Mr. Cardin, uh, members of the committee, and uh, a great public servant, Ambassador Jeffrey. I come at this issue having seen counterterrorism and military operations through the prism of those who led them at the CIA and the Defense Department. And I think here's the bottom line. We've been talking about Syria, we've been talking about Iraq. ISIS is a global threat. ISIS is a global challenge, and that's why I believe we need a global, comprehensive strategy to defeat ISIS and protect American national security interests. This this challenge is so urgent, so complicated, that in my view, the only way to accomplish it is to simultaneously use the full measure of our diplomatic, military, law enforcement, intelligence, economic, and public diplomacy efforts. Now let me make three quick points about the current campaign and Ambassador Jeffrey hit on some of them. First, I think the campaign against ISIS in Mosul and in Raqqa should be intensified. What does intensification look like? Greater intelligence resources to track ISIS planners, increased pace of airstrikes, particularly in Raqqa, training and equipping those forces on the ground who can deny ISIS a safe haven. Point two, on the global front, we have to stay on the offensive against ISIS everywhere. And I should also add al-Qaeda. I know that's not the focus of this hearing, but let's not, focus, let's not lose sight of the important role that al-Qaeda plays as well. ISIS, we have to operate. They operate in the Sahel, to Europe, to South Asia. And when American air power is necessary, as it was recently in Libya, I believe we should deploy it without hesitation. But in many cases, Our work is going to entail the less headline-grabbing activities, information sharing, data correlation, intelligence training, law enforcement training, and diplomacy. Take Europe, for example. There, we must keep our focus on the travel of foreign fighters, work with our European allies and partners. In most areas of the world, the main levers of U.S. power will be this intelligence cooperation, the day-to-day diplomacy. And that's why our campaign cannot, in my view, be globally led by the military alone. Point three, we must counter ISIS's use of social media, Twitter, Telegram, and other outlets that they use for their propaganda purposes. As this committee has recognized, propaganda is an accelerant on the process of radicalization. And in that vein, our efforts should be geared towards working with Muslim leaders here in the United States and in Muslim-majority countries from Africa to the Gulf to Southeast Asia to counter ISIS's narrative. Now, turning now to the current administration's already stated plans, and although the administration is only about three weeks old, it actually has moved aggressively in some areas with regards to counter-ISIS policy. I strongly support the President's decision to conduct a quick review of the anti-ISIS campaign. We do not want our momentum to stall. However, I think there are some areas where I think the administration's early steps warrant some adjustment. First, we must make clear that we support our allies. They are taking fire from ISIS at this very hour. For example, Australia. Australia has fought with us in every war since World War II. They are the second largest troop contributor to the counter-ISIS effort. We have to thank Australia every chance we get. We also need the support of our NATO allies, and there will be an opportunity later this spring for the President to make that case clearly himself when he attends the NATO summit. Second, we should ensure that diplomacy is on an equal footing with military planning. We referenced the 28 January Directive. A comprehensive global strategy requires that the State Department be on equal footing with the Defense Department. Third, in my view, we should repeal the Muslim-only ban. And I say this strictly from a national security perspective. Counterterrorism requires focus. If you put an entire civilian populace under suspicion, you're inevitably going to take your eye off the true threats. And worse, we have handed ISIS, in my view, the ultimate recruiting tool. Fourth, we should disavow taking their oil or torture. These play into the worst fears of the very people we're trying to enlist to support our efforts. And finally, I agree with Ambassador Jeffrey, I would not outsource the counter-ISIS campaign to Russia or to Iran or to Assad. This is a very dangerous idea. Uh, Russia and Syria have conducted hideous crimes in my view. They liquefied the town of Aleppo in a scene too horrible to allow to be shown on my own television in my living room when young children were present. Russia's misdeeds cannot be trusted and the administration I believe will inevitably come to this conclusion after a period of time. And so in conclusion, Mr. Chairman, the counter-ISIS campaign has made important progress. ISIS has lost more than half its territory. Many of its senior leaders have been taken off the battlefield. They are being squeezed, but we cannot and should not be complacent. Now is the time to accelerate our campaign, intensify our efforts, and hasten the defeat of ISIS on a global scale. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you both. I'm going to ask one question and uh, reserve the rest of my time. but. Uh it is interesting. We we've talked about the Kurds, we talked about the Kurdish supported Arabs, we talked about Turkey and the Syrian opposition, we talked about the Assad regime and its allies. You referred to uh, American presence. You did not yet. So tell us, uh, what is the U.S. role in this?
2: That's a pretty complicated single question, Mr. Chairman. The U.S. role, first of all, uh, is in,
0: to- in Raqqa. In Raqqa.
2: In Raqqa. In Raqqa. What
0: is the U.S. role?
2: Uh, the U.S., as the head of a coalition, has the overall command and control of the various operations uh, being conducted now by what's called the Syrian Democratic Force, which is essentially largely the uh, Kurdish Kurds and, and the Arabs, yeah and a few Arabs. Uh, And the US uh, has people embedded with them, coordinates with them. It hasn't really given the Kurds weapons. It's given some light weapons to the uh, Arab component of the SDF. And so uh, basically it is seen as the overall military campaign of against ISIS focused on ISIS as a state in Mosul and in Raqqa. And this is essentially the Western side of the offensive. The question is, Uh, given the United States' list of allies in the region, including Turkey, uh, how can we ensure the maximum uh, rapid defeat of ISIS and the taking of Raqqa? And that raises questions about who our allies are and how we coordinate all of these folks, because while many of them agree on fighting ISIS, they don't agree on each other, sir.
0: Well, it is the question, and and no offense, it has been answered, so Mr. Bash... Uh, I, I'm not trying to be offensive here. It seems it's, it's, it's the question everybody is dancing around uh, for lots of reasons. But you mentioned not outsourcing it to all these people. So what does that mean?
3: Th- three aspects of the U.S. role: first, intelligence gathering, human intelligence, signal t- intelligence collection. Second, now, uh, I'm, not asking, forward-
0: I'm not asking about. I, I want to know what it means to not outsource it. Get- <laughs> Gathering intelligence is not taking Raqqa, but please be specific with your answer.
3: Forward air controllers by U.S. Special Operations Forces, and the third element, I believe, would be training, funding, <coughs> providing lethal offensive equipment to the Syrian Democratic Forces.
0: And that would be the, the— Those are the only people that we should be in coordination with, not the Turks.
3: Well, of course, I think we have to dialogue with the Turks because, as Ambassador Jeffrey noted, we have to have them on board, ultimately, for our efforts there.
2: Uh, Mr. Chairman, I could add to my answer. We do need the Turks in the fight. We need two parallel fronts, I believe, for political reasons and possibly for military. Again, I think we need at least some... uh, ground combat American troops to support the other forces we have in there if we want this to go quickly and if we wanna have some influence on what folks do after the day. Uh, The Russians put some of their elite uh, special forces troops in a combat as opposed to advisory role. They didn't get in a quagmire and they had considerable success.
0: You agree with that?
3: I do believe we will need some of our special operations forces on the ground, yes.
0: And those, those would be ground troops then?
3: Well, they would, they, would, they would be troops, U.S. troops. Whether they would conduct direct action missions or they would be in an advise and assist role in assisting the local elements, I think we would have to hear from the commanders on the ground that would be most effective. But I would have no problem with some small number of U.S. special operations forces in do, do you get the sense that
0: the Pentagon will recommend um, having U.S. forces on the ground in Raqqa?
2: Pentagon, sir, I believe from my experience there, and Jeremy has worked there, and I've worked with it for 50 years, uh, basically takes the mission that the president and that the Congress gives it and then turns it into options. Uh, it is hard for me to believe if you let that process work out and you say, we want to destroy ISIS as a state, we want to do this quickly, and we want to have influence on the ground with our allies afterwards, that you would not at least consider a small element of U.S. ground troops. And I'll be specific, I'm talking maneuver battalions, perhaps an armor battalion. You saw how effective tanks have been in uh, uh, Mosul against, uh, with the Iraqis against uh, ISIS. Who is gonna provide the armor in Raqqa? Uh, I would say we need to look at that very carefully.
0: Thank you. I, I, I had known you had made those comments in the past, and was just trying to tease that out. I, I just want to say, you know, we we're working through all kinds of proxies here, and um, it's uh, it's very difficult to control what proxies do. Um, and I mean, it's 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 the one question I think that's really not being discussed as openly or. As, uh, as candidly, I know it's gonna be discussed at one point, at some point, and so that's why I'm asking the question.
2: With, with, my, with my experience, including 45 years ago in uniform, a few American troops on the ground up there with the people who are doing the fighting have not only a tremendous multiplier effect on the military effectiveness, they can win the confidence and the trust of the people on the ground And that has a huge impact on the political side of things
1: as well as the military.
0: Thank you so much, Senator Cardin.
1: Mr. Chairman, thank you for uh, that line of questioning. I think it is extremely helpful. And it really underscores my concern with the Department of Defense being the lead rather than the State Department. Because Ambassador Jeffrey, I think you answered the question as the Department of Defense will answer the question. You You have a military mission. These are the options. The President selects one of those military options. And yes, we have uh, immediate success on the military operation, but long term we don't have a solution and we're back to where we were in a long process with perhaps emboldening the uh, recruitment uh, of extremists. So that, that's, this is a complicated situation. No one denies that. We welcome the review by the uh, Trump administration. Uh, we, we are dealing with the realities that Russia and Iran are in Syria. And uh, as both of you pointed out, we can't deal with Russia and Iran. And I agree with that completely, but they're there. So how do we frame a response with the realities of Russia and Iran? We have coalition partners that have different priorities and strategies than we do. Turkey has a different strategy. Saudi Arabia has a different priority. How do we deal with the realities of our coalition partners? So there's no easy answer. My concern is the risks that you brought out of more American troops on the ground. What does that mean? Or if we're talking about, and can we control the numbers when we start with a small number and it the mission requires additional military support and America has the, has the strongest military, are we going down a path that's going to lead to a significant increase in our military commitment on the ground, which we know leads to long-term challenges that are hard to overcome. And secondly, if we're not on the ground and we are supporting a military operations and we see large civilian casualties, does that add to our challenges of long-term success in the region since we have delegated that to the opposition or troops that may not be as sensitive to what happens with civilians' uh, uh, casualties? Any comments either one of you have about that observation? How do you overcome that? How do we ensure that we are not going down a path of uh, a major increase in US presence through through ground troops, which is historically has proven to be counterproductive or are complicitous in large number of civilian casualties?
2: Um, I, I share your concern, uh, Senator, having spent four years in Vietnam and Iraq and uh, classic examples of being bogged down in conflicts. Uh, first of all, when I said you give DOD a mission and it will rack and stack the uh, options, I'm talking about the military side of the mission and that's correct. That's not the whole mission and I know that-
1: uh, But they're they're being placed in the lead here, which is has me concerned.
2: I, I realize that, but the person who's being placed in the lead, uh, Secretary Mattis, who I've had many experiences with uh, in both toys in Iraq is someone who knows the political side of things and knows he needs that political uh, battle buddy, if you will, just like Crocker and uh, Petraeus a decade ago on the surge. So I think that uh, you'll get that, but still from the military side of it, there is a military component to this and there is there are various military solutions. Inserting more American troops, as you said, Uh, raises political as well as military and questions of casualties, Uh, but it can cut both ways. If you give the U.S. military a concrete military goal, be it liberating Kuwait in 1990, or for that matter, taking down Saddam in 2003, the military is able to generate the forces and do it. The question is the political question of the day after. We had a pretty good, but not complete answer in 1991. We didn't have a good answer in 2003. And by default, we passed that on to the military and we all know in this chamber what happened. That is something I would be absolutely opposed to, but that shouldn't, force us to go back and say then we cannot even use ground forces for military missions. The point is we can't use ground forces for armed nation building, sir.
1: Ambassador Jeffrey, I agree with your point. I have all the confidence in our military of carrying out a military mission. And I want Mr. Bash to respond, but I'll also, if you could, include in your answer how the rumored executive order dealing with black sites by the administration and the executive order dealing with immigration and refugees How does that play into our
3: strategies
1: uh, in regards to Syria?
3: On detention and interrogation, uh, we have not engaged in enhanced interrogation or employed uh, those black sites since President Bush.
1: If there was an executive order that led us in that path. Right,
3: uh, this is my point, Mr. Ranking member, which is we have not employed those since President Bush, not President Obama, President Bush emptied the black sites in 2006. And now, 11 years later, we've been actually able to protect our country from a large-scale terrorist attack. So I, don't, I think those tactics are totally unnecessary, and I think it would be a huge mistake uh, for the administration to return to enhanced interrogation, uh, or as the President calls it, torture and uh, and, and detention in, in black sites. Um, on the issue of, uh, of U.S. forces on the ground, uh, look, I think we can learn a lot of lessons from taking out Al-Qaeda's, decimating Al-Qaeda's senior leadership along the Afghanistan-Pakistan border where we did not have a lot of ground troops that we could use. We used a lot of intelligence and a lot of precision airstrikes. We were able to basically suppress them and prevent them from their external operations, which really fundamentally is our biggest priority when it comes to ISIS in Iraq. We don't want them planning external plots. So I think we should put an emphasis on that. And then as for US forces on the ground, I would not draw a line and say no boots on the ground or, or some have some policy like that. I think we probably do have to have US Special Operations Forces on the ground in what quantity and specifically how they're armed or trained. Uh, I think that that's a point of conversation.
0: Thank you, thank you. Senator Johnson.
4: Thank hey, Mr. Chairman, according to our hearing briefing, uh, in the fight in Mosul, we got about 65,000 uh, combination Iraqi, Kurdish, uh, Peshmerga, Sunni tribesmen engaged in that battle, about 5,000 U.S. troops, 3,500 coalition personnel. We've been at that now for about four months. Uh, how, how much longer is that going to go on? Just a quick estimate.
2: Uh, three to four more months probably, Senator, unless so they crack. That,
4: that, so that's an eight-month effort with uh, you know, more than 70,000 troops. Uh, is Iraq going to be easier or more difficult than Mosul?
2: The assumption from troop levels and such that I've heard is that it is not as heavily defended or as dug in as Mosul, that Mosul was where they decided ISIS uh, to make their big fight. And we've had good success pushing close to Raqqa with the YPG and the uh, Syrian Democratic Forces um, over the past uh, uh, six months. Nonetheless, we shouldn't underestimate how tough any of these fights are with these guys, because with Raqqa, that'll be their last, that'll be their Alamo.
4: So do you think we'll need substantially less than 70,000 total combined troops to take over Raqqa?
2: Of the 70,000 troops that have been committed, uh, Senator, probably 10 to 15,000 are actually in offensive combat roles into the city, the, uh, the uh, Iraqi Counterterrorism Service, which is very good, uh, the 9th Army Division, which provides most of the heavy weapons, uh, some of the, the Iraqi uh, National Police Division, which is actually also an elite force, and bits and pieces of several other divisions. So you divisions.
4: got, got 15,000 good Iraqi troops, again, close to 10,000 good American and coalition troops, that's 25,000. Are we gonna need 25,000 for Raqqa? And, and I'm going to go back to the Chairman's question, who's going to provide those? And, and again, to say that Syrian Democratic Forces, you know, when we had the debate over the Syrian authorization for use of military force, who's leading it? I mean, there were 1,200 different Syrian groups. Where is this force?
2: The Syrian Democratic Force, which is essentially a camouflage of the Kurdish uh, Syrian YPG, uh, has about 25,000 uh, forces, not all of which could be committed to the uh, Raqqa battle. I don't think that's enough troops, and I think that's one reason why we're, uh, we're going slow.
4: So, so let, let's say you know, we, we have a combination of U.S. coalition and, I guess, Kurdish YPG or Peshmerga forces to, to clear it, to, to take Raqqa. Who's going to hold it? Who's going to hold the, the, the territory in Syria so that Assad just doesn't flow right back in there and, you know, we, we, we clear it out, they hold it?
3: I think we need to have a, an element of the SDF play the hold role along with other coalition allies and partners. And I think we can't do this alone and I think they can't do this alone, but, but there are another other but, options.
4: Define the element of the SDF. Who are they? Where are they? Now you, I just heard part. They're really camouflaged Kurdish forces. So those are the Kurds. That's not going to go over well with Turkey. It, so we can we can throw these things out, but it, I mean, realistically, is that even possible?
2: Uh, you're absolutely right, Senator. The four major tribes around Raqqa. <clears throat> we just did research at the Washington Institute. Uh, none of them are enthused about Kurds coming in. They've had long-standing. Uh, uh, essentially disputes and uh, conflict with the Kurds. There is an Arab element in the uh, Syrian Democratic uh, Forces. Uh, the State Department people who are operating that are optimistic about that, um, less so, people outside the administration are less so. It's one reason why we want to see the Free Syrian Army, who we have better contact with, because we did train some of them, and we're working with the Turks indirectly, and the Turks are working
4: You okay, them. train some of them in the hundreds?
2: Uh, in the thousands and uh, over the past few years on various uh, uh, clandestine programs.
4: So how many, how many free Syrian forces do
2: we have? Uh, it gets squishy on numbers, but uh, you're talking about somewhere between 20 and 30,000 uh, counting both the YPG, uh, the other uh, Arabs. And again, that'd be, those would
4: be Kurdish forces.
2: Those are mostly Kurdish forces. So if, if it's
4: primarily primarily Kurdish forces a clear Raqqa, they're going to kind of want to hold it, aren't they?
2: That is the default position of every military force I've ever seen in the Middle East, Senator. It doesn't mean that at the end of the day that's what happens, but you got to take that into consideration. It's one reason why I'm concerned about putting all of our weight on that particular but force. diplomacy
4: follows... Facts on the ground, right? So facts uh, on the ground, if a military force takes over a city, they're gonna hold it.
2: If diplomacy has a big enough uh, sledgehammer, it can push things in its way. But again, it's one reason why you need American uh, forces on the ground in some numbers. It's why you have to have a very strong American command and control of this. But,
4: but the, the question still is, American forces bolstering who? I mean, I, I, I still haven't got uh, the chairman's question answered. Who's gonna fight this fight? Who's gonna hold? Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. Senator Shaheen.
5: Thank you all very much for being here to discuss what is obviously a very thorny issue, and I share both of the views that you've expressed about um, the importance of reassessing at this stage our policy with respect to ISIS. And I also agree with both of you, as Senator has said, that um, the military piece is the easy piece. It's the Diplomatic and what comes next—that's the hard piece. And um, so, tell me, tell me how we do that, um, because I think we—we we talk about the specifics of the military aspects of this kind of a conflict because it's easier to understand and it's easier to do um, when you think about. You know, we can put X number of troops on the ground. We can provide X number of. Um, flights. Um, we can do X number of bombing raids. But, but how do we build um, governance, local governments, governance in a country like Syria that has had no civil society groups at all that's been des- decimated? And as you both point out, we haven't done well. And we didn't do it well in Vietnam. We didn't do it well in Iraq. Um, in Afghanistan, it's still... Uh, remains to be seen what the outcome is going to be so what are the what are the building blocks that we need to do um, if we're going to get this right in terms of balancing the diplomatic mission of this effort with the military mission so uh, either one of you can go first
2: um. I think Senator Johnson made a pretty good case that actually the military side of it isn't the easier part of it, that we have to answer a lot of questions on the forces and uh, that. And that also feeds into, uh, Senator Schrein, who uh, will hold the ground afterwards.
5: Um, right. That's the question that I'm asking. Right. What happens the day after?
2: Yeah, there's, there's several problems with your question, and it's a legitimate and very important question. One is anybody who thinks he or she can give a really good answer to it has not seen what I've seen over the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, Secondly, it also depends on some outside conditions. We looked at this, including this chamber, 20 years ago in the Balkans, and some of the same questions came up. Uh, I was involved in that, one thing I learned is if you can get the basic diplomacy of the region right, so that you don't have outside forces trying to undercut whatever messy situation, temporary messy sloppy situation you have on the ground because that's the only situation you have. It kind of works. In Bosnia, which is a very, I don't want to hurt the Bosnian uh, government or people, but it's a very um, uh, de facto, very uh, jury-rigged thing.
5: Yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with that, but I, I'm still not clear on what what you think should happen as part of that governance, M- getting most, it right.
2: Most importantly, we need some kind of understanding shared or accepted or forced on Iran in Russia and Turkey and to a lesser extent, the Arab states on what the order in Iraq and Syria should look like, how independent those countries should be and how free of influence from the outside and the outside is mainly Iran under these circumstances. If we can get that under control, local forces in these areas with help from the international community, with help from us, uh, with help from NGOs, can slowly build up. That's what we did in the Balkans. We did an outside in where we fixed the diplomacy in the region. We got everybody more or less on board. And then we had several decades to tinker at reconciliation at the village level, digging wells and that kind of thing. If you try to start with digging wells and uh, reconciliation when the Iranians, the Pakistanis, the Syrians and others are sending in people to kill the folks doing it, believe me, it doesn't work, I've seen it.
5: So, I I agree with you, it doesn't work. So, Mr. Bash, what's the likelihood we're going to get it right given what's happening with Russia, with Iran, with Iraq, with um, this... The fragility of Mr. Al Badi's um, leadership in Iraq. What's what are the chances that that's going the to The likelihood
3: that we will know even if we are getting it right is very low, because I think this is fundamentally a generational struggle. And as Ambassador Jeffrey laid out, there's so many elements that have to play out over such a long time that this is going to require the patient work of our diplomats and our coalition partners over time to find partners on the ground who want to be responsible for their own country. We can't want it more than them. And it's going to require us convincing them to take ownership of their own country and that's I'm referring specifically to Syria in that case. At the end of the day, I don't believe Assad is gonna be a reliable partner. I think he's gonna sow chaos and cause destruction and mayhem uh, as long as he's there. So fundamentally, I think any plan to defeat ISIS in terms of ejecting it completely, ejecting the conditions for ISIS in the ground of Syria, have to include the removal of Assad.
5: Um, We had a briefing in the Armed Services Committee last week from the Institute on the Study of War, and they suggested that defeating ISIS was not ultimately going to solve our problem, that they would be replaced by another terrorist group. And in fact, if we look at areas that have been cleared in Syria of ISIS, that al-Qaeda has moved into some of those small villages and that they have picked right up and are taking over in terms of governance. So do you share that view and um, how, does, how does that affect what we're ha- what's happening right now in terms of the military situation,
0: briefly, please.
2: As a terrorist group, uh, people are right. <clears throat> and there is <clears throat> in any situation like Syria, but unlike Iraq, where when ISIS has been cleared, uh, essentially government authority has been reinstated. So that would be my argument to your other question. There are ways to make things work because nobody in the outside is trying to mess with what's going on in Iraq today. Once uh, ISIS is driven out, Syria is different. Other people will pop up as long as you have a uh, situation that's so chaotic as Syria is. But even then, ISIS is unique as it's a state, it has an army, it controlled at its height, five, six, seven million people. That's what made it such a threat to the region and a threat to project power against Europe and against uh, the United States. That will go if we defeat it. If we don't solve uh, Syria and we don't solve the mess that will be afterwards, we're still gonna have terrorist groups but it'll be a different order of magnitude.
5: Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh, it's with a slight degree of trepidation that I disagree with the only female member of this committee. I, I think in Syria, my observation has been, it's been that we haven't been able to come up with a real military strategy, whether it's others or not. We've tried all kinds of training and equipped, not tried it enough, in my opinion. But to me, we are where we are today, but without, yeah. Yeah, I think the military component in Syria has by far been the most difficult, unanswered question. Uh, There's been a lot of diplomacy, but diplomacy without changing facts on the ground has been fairly hollow. Uh, Senator Young.
6: Thank you. Mr. Bash, in your written testimony, you discussed the fact diplomacy needs to be on equal footing with military planning and a successful strategy to defeat ISIS. I agree, which is uh, why I sent a letter to that effect to Secretary of State uh, Tillerson. I um, I request unanimous consent the letter be entered into the record.
0: Without objection.
6: Okay. Ambassador Jeffrey. Based on your years of experience uh, as a senior diplomat, your time at DOD and CIA, uh, would you agree that the largest number of victims by far of radical Islamist terrorists, whether it's ISIS or Al-Qaeda, and its affiliates have been Muslims?
3: Absolutely.
6: Mr. Bash, based on your years of experience, you agree? Yes. And both of you, would you agree that the vast majority of Muslims oppose terrorism? They
7: do.
3: Yes.
6: Would you agree that if we're ever going to defeat radical Islamist terrorists and their depraved ideology, we'll need to work closely and collaboratively with predominantly Muslim governments and populations? I do, and we actually do. Yes. And would you agree that ISIS and Al-Qaeda would love for the U.S.-led campaign against them to be characterized as a war of religion
3: or a
2: war of civilizations? That's exactly what they claim it is, and what they hope that we will fall into.
3: Yeah, I agree with that.
6: So, within a week after the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush visited the Islamic Center of Washington. He said, quote, These acts of violence against innocents violate the fundamental tenets of the Islamic faith. He continued, America counts millions of Muslims amongst our citizens and Muslims make an incredibly valuable contribution to our country. Muslims are doctors, lawyers, law professors, members of the military, entrepreneurs, shopkeepers, moms and dads, and they need to be treated with with respect. In our anger and emotion, our fellow Americans must treat each other with respect. Would you both agree that such a statement not only honors American values, but is also factually correct and strategically smart? I agree.
3: It was a very, very wise statement.
6: Thank you. Mr. Bash, in your prepared statement, you discuss ISIS use of online propaganda and incitement, their, quote, virtual caliphate, unquote. You also cite the Chicago Project on security and threats. Uh, This study examined 112 cases of individuals who perpetrated ISIS-related offenses, were indicted by the US Justice, Justice Department for such offenses, or both, in the US between March 2014 and August 2016. 83% of those studied had watched ISIS propaganda videos. As you state, propaganda is an accelerant on the process of radicalization. You also state that American efforts to counter the propaganda of terrorists have been met with mixed results. Working with Muslim leaders, what specific steps can the United States government and the State Department take to better counter ISIS propaganda that has played such a significant role in terrorist radicalization and recruitment?
3: I think most importantly, we have to convince the Muslim majority countries of the region to to speak up about what Islam in their view stands for, and what the proper view of Islam is, and to work with their local leaders and their local religious leaders to articulate that vision. And that just can't be done from government podiums, it has to be done where ISIS and others communicate, particularly online and social media.
6: So to facilitate that sort of conversation, uh, those sort, sorts of
3: messages being delivered, what role, as you see it, might this committee play? I think fun, uh, supporting the efforts of and, and, and looking at the efforts of the Global Engagement Center at the State Department and other public diplomacy efforts uh, on, that, on that vector are appropriate.
6: And what is your assessment of the Global Engagement Center
3: uh, and how do you measure success or uh, falling short? They've had a couple of reboots. I think uh, some of our efforts have had some false starts. My sense, and I don't have this in great specificity, I would like to look into it, uh, is that in, in recent months, they've, they've had a renewed energy and a renewed focus, and I think they've got a good, they've had a good team in place there, and I hope that they continue to.
6: How do we measure success, uh, both of you, with respect to uh, information, operations, cyber strategies, public diplomacy? Um, It's unclear to me, we emphasize this a lot, but how do we measure success? I'm running out of time, but uh, if you have any thoughts on that, either of you.
2: Um, You can't look at the inputs because that's typically what we do. How many people we have, how many messages we get out. Uh, Basically, it's feedback from communities that basically tell folks who we trust in those communities, that they like what they're hearing, and a lot of it has to be us supporting people so that folks don't even know it's coming out of the United States or it's coming from the West, but it's coming from uh, people and they're all over the Middle East who essentially abhor what ISIS and Al-Qaeda are doing.
3: Let me just add one thing, Senator. CSIS, under the leadership of my old boss, Secretary Panetta and Tony Blair, conducted a Countering Violent Extremism Study and Commission. Uh, They reported out just after the election. And there's a lot of good polling information in there and a lot of good information about how to measure uh, the impacts of some of these CVE efforts. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Senator Markey. Senator Menendez, Senator Markey's gone. Uh,
8: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you both for your testimony, Mr. Bashai. I appreciate the comprehensive nature that you mentioned in your testimony because from my own personal perspective, I think it's one of the aspects, although we say we have a comprehensive plan, I think we've fallen far short from a comprehensive plan and I appreciate the efforts that you laid out. I think they're spot on in terms of what we need and I hope the administration will actually take to heart some of what you've said. I wanna particularly ask uh, about Russia. Um, President Trump has indicated he would like to cooperate with Russia to defeat ISIS. And my question, is this a realistic proposition? Uh, Russia is uh, and has repeatedly shown uh, its interest in the region and supporting a war criminal like Assad and the latest reports uh, just magnify the brutality uh of that regime uh collaborating with uh leading state sponsors of terrorism in iran uh in fact over the weekend uh a kremlin spokesman said quote russia has friendly like relations with iran we cooperate on a wide range of issues we value our trade ties we hope to develop them further so between sentiments like that and uh the uh President's National Security Advisor putting Iran on notice. Uh, How viable is a partnership with Russia in combating ISIS? Uh, It doesn't seem to me uh, that that has been their central focus uh, in the region.
3: Let me answer it this way, Senator. Uh, We tried, we tested that proposition, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense tested that proposition and the test failed. Russia utterly lacked the the professionalism, the training, and the political will to cooperate with us. It it, it wasn't just that their their military actions were imprecise and 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 targeted civilians. They did those things. It was that they actually wouldn't coordinate with us and wouldn't work with us in any protective fashion. And I believe what they were fundamentally trying to do in, in reaching out to us to coordinate is to establish their own foothold in Syria to end their global isolation from what they had done in Europe and Ukraine and to try to challenge and undermine our interests around the world. So I think not only would it not be productive, it would actually be counterproductive. Mm.
8: So let me uh, just say, it seems to me that while we haven't had the comprehensive strategy uh, I think we need, uh, I do think that President Trump is inheriting a a functioning coalition that has avoided blowups in Iraq and taken back all the cities except half of Mosul trained up Iraqi forces, kept Shia militants largely sidelined from the main battles, and done all of that while keeping Americans out of combat and off the front lines. Um, So what happens from here on is on the president's uh, watch. In that regard, when you say that Iran, when the president says that Iran is taking over Iraq more and more every day, uh, I wonder how that kind of talk plays in Iraq. Uh, I uh, I unlike Putin's Russia which is totally authoritarian a body in Iraqi uh, uh, democratic politics uh, are subject to far more consequences of language like that there's only so much they can absorb uh, versus uh, you know uh, entities that are as authoritarian as, as Putin's Russia is and so uh, uh, ambassador Jeffrey what, what do you say to that
2: um- It wasn't helpful, and of course, the Iraqis immediately reacted and said, "Uh, heaven forbid, we have nothing to do with Iranians. Uh, The point is, Iran is probably the most important player in Iraq. But it's not like in Lebanon where it actually controls, essentially, uh, a monopoly of force or can generate a monopoly of force uh, and basically dictate to the government. It has two major obstacles. One obstacle is, of course, the, uh, the religious authorities in Najaf who have a different view of Shia Islam and don't turn to Iran. The second one is uh, the oil that Iraq pumps. It's one of the major reasons why uh, uh, Iran isn't weeping the, reaping the kind of uh, uh, financial rewards of selling oil now after the uh, nuclear agreement because uh, oil prices are low and one of the major reasons for that is Iraq's success. And the Iraqis, including the Shia, Arab Iraqis, uh, do not want to be a vassal state of uh, Iran. And there are ways that we in the international community can help Iraq stay independent of Iran, but it requires sustained engagement on our part and it requires us recognizing that Iran is the problem. And up until very recently, we haven't had that, sir.
8: Yeah, I I agree, it requires us recognizing Iran is a problem. It requires us recognizing that Russia is complicit with Iran in a variety variety series of issues. It also uh, has to have some sensitivity for President Trump to understand that when he says what he says uh, about Iraq, when he says we're gonna take their oil, It undermines uh, the effort of a nascent government uh, and their ability to be cohesive uh, and be less dependent on Iran. And that, to me, is a critical part of the fight uh, against uh, ISIS. Uh, Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Senator Portman. uh, Before I get to that, though, this is something I've been saying for some time. This is not a recent thing, but I mean, In fairness, this has nothing to do with the current president, nor any defense. I mean, Iran has huge influence over the parliament there, there's no question, is there? And I've been saying for a couple of years now that everything we're doing there is, to a degree, making Iraq a better country for Iran. I mean, I know we want to maintain our influence, but I mean, there is some truth to that somewhat rhetorical statement, is there not?
2: It's, about every third morning I get up and I would agree with that, but the other two mornings I see what uh, goes on there, Uh, the way that people welcomed us back, Senator, in 2014 and 2015, and how we've been able to forge this force that is now fighting effectively against a very tough enemy. We also have the Kurds in the north who are very close to us and can play a very interesting role in balancing that ship of state. Uh, And uh, the uh, Iraqis, what they do not want to do is to be enlisted in any American campaign against Iran. They want to stay neutral if they can. It's one reason why they resist the Saudis and others, because they want them to say, we're Arabs, we're against um, Iran. Again, if uh, Iran could have had its way, uh, Iraq's oil exports would have been capped way below what Iran's were, and Iran would have um, reaped the benefits of much higher oil prices. The Iraq- yeah. But Iran was smart enough to know they couldn't demand that, because the Iraqis would say no. That's what I look at, is what would Iran like to do in Iraq that it can't do? And the next big question is us uh, trying to keep our forces on.
0: Well, we'll find out as soon as Mosul is taken, won't we? Senator Portman.
9: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Let me dig a little deeper into the discussion we had earlier uh, about Russia and and their role. And in response to uh, Senator Menendez's question, Mr. Bash, you said that you believe that uh, Russia's intent is to have a stronger foothold in the Middle East, particularly in Syria, uh, and that uh, they also were seeking to um, move away from the political isolation based on their actions in Eastern Europe. Um, I think it's more than that. And I I think it's an attempt by Russia to try to work on a uh, grand bargain, as we talk about around here, which would be to relieve some of the sanctions, uh, certainly the sanctions related to Crimea and probably what they're doing on the eastern border of Ukraine maybe some of the human rights sanctions, in exchange for a fight against ISIS. And so I think we have to look at what has actually happened. Um, I guess the first question I would have for you is with regard to the government that they're backing in Syria and have kept in, in power, in, in effect, which is Assad. I mean, do you think that Assad's regime, uh, particularly the barrel bombing of civilians, the chemical weapons use, uh, this atrocity we heard about over the weekend, um, uh, the attacks uh, against the moderate rebel groups, um, do you think these sorts of things have escalated uh, the conflict um, and uh, fueled the growth of ISIS in syria
3: very much so. I think Syria creates the the petri dish in which an ISIS can grow, and the assad 's policies accomplish that. I agree with the premise of your statement that the the whole the whole mode of of syria 's and Assad is to do these things in the name of counterterrorism, in the name of fighting ISIS. In effect, what they're doing is liquidating the entire part of the country that could be a moderate opposition and that could actually assume power. And that's why he's doing it, because it's a threat fundamentally to his seat of power. And he's doing that with the umbrella and t- tactical and operational support of Russia.
9: It's so hard to say that uh, by backing Assad, it's helped with regard to the fight against ISIS, which is what this hearings about. Um, Second would be, you know, how effective has Russia been at going after ISIS? My sense is, from all the reporting we're getting and a lot of different groups have now documented this, that Moscow has targeted the non-ISIS forces far more than they have ever targeted any ISIS forces or or other uh, extremist forces. Um, Is that your understanding? Do you agree that Russia and Iran have devoted the bulk of their efforts in Syria to defeating the moderate opposition rather than uh, going after ISIS?
2: I do, Senator, Uh, and there's a long tradition of that. During the uh, uh, Iraq campaign, Assad was allowing al-Qaeda volunteers to come through Damascus and go over the border and support the al-Qaeda attacks on us and on the Iraqi government. Uh, and we've seen this with uh, uh, Assad basically cutting deals, particularly in the oil uh, uh, area with uh, ISIS over the past uh, four years, and focusing on the more moderate groups. And with the Russians, they've done one campaign against ISIS, they seized Palmyra, but you'll notice that ISIS took it back. So I'm not impressed with their military capabilities against ISIS, let alone their political motivations. Yeah, you
9: mentioned that, that earlier on the military capabilities, that was interesting. and. Uh, Uh, Let me ask you the the, the question then. Would either of you think that it would be in our interest as a country to lift the Ukraine related sanctions in exchange for Russian cooperation in the Middle East against ISIS?
3: In my view, that grand bargain would be a horrible deal for the United States. We we would get all the downside and none of the upside.
2: I agree. The only argument for lifting uh, sanctions on Ukraine is a deal on Ukraine. It's a totally separate issue, but even if it were link somehow, I still have to ask, what does Russia bring to the fight, other than endorsing the very worst elements in the region that fuels conflict, fuels extremism, and doesn't uh, damp it down?
9: And Ambassador, based on your broad experience uh, in the intelligence community and national security community, uh, how do you feel about relieving sanctions when the underlying Reason for the sanctions, the cause of the sanctions is not addressed. Doesn't that send a terrible signal to our allies uh, and our adversaries alike that the United States doesn't stand by uh, the reasons we put these sanctions in place?
2: Absolutely. Uh, And sanctions, particularly the sanctions we have against Russia right now, are having a significant effect on the Russian economy, and that's a good thing. And it also gives us leverage to get them to, first of all, contain uh, their own aggressiveness in the Ukraine uh, and possibly eventually someday do a deal. But until they do a deal, the sanctions should stay on.
9: Thank you, I have very little time, but I wanna uh, echo some of the comments that my colleague, Senator Young, said in terms of our fight against ISIS. This is a hearing about that issue and in the Governmental Affairs Committee, we've had some of these same discussions, um, how to get the Global Engagement Center to be more effective, as uh, you said, Uh, We have had uh, a difficult time putting the U.S. government policies together to be able to effectively counter, particularly online, uh, much less involving, as you suggest, uh, uh, Muslim majority countries and the Muslim community here in a more effective way. I think that's our our most significant challenge. So I'm going to follow up with some questions in writing for both of you on that, uh, following up on some hearings we've had in the Homeland
10: Security and Government Affairs Committee. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Murphy. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I hope that this administration recovers from uh, a very rocky start on America's relationship with the world. Um, but uh, if they don't, this committee is going to be incredibly important in providing oversight and asking some questions. I think this administration has made some really stunning mistakes when it comes to the counter-ISIL campaign. Uh, they've launched a new strategy with the Department of Defense in the lead. This panel has told us that state should uh, be equivalent to defense in plotting that strategy. They've suggested that Russia will be a key component to the military strategy. This panel has told us that Russia should have no part of that, uh, of that military strategy inside Syria. Uh, they've launched a ban on immigration from Iraq and Syria. This panel has told us that that, in fact, could feed uh, recruitment efforts of the very groups that were fighting. But frankly, I think all those mistakes would be dwarfed by a decision on behalf of this administration to put U.S. combat troops into Syria. And so, um, Ambassador Jeffrey, I just wanted to drill down a little bit more on this question because it is one of your recommendations. Um, I'm trying to understand how we would limit um, a large deployment of troops you recommend in the thousands to a military mission. Uh, the r- reality I imagine is that after the military objective was, um, was accomplished um, and this very complicated convoluted process of sorting out who controls Raqqa began, the United States military presence could not leave because having invested major treasure and perhaps lives in securing Raqqa, we would not leave the distribution of power to a set of players that were under our control during the invasion. Um, And so I, I guess I'm worried about a military deployment because I don't understand how it doesn't end up in the same way that Iraq did, that we are bogged down, that we can't leave, that we have so much at stake that we need to keep that military presence there in order to try to have some say over the distribution of power. But you seem to suggest that we could have a purely military role and then leave the politics to somebody else, even though that's not how things have played out in previous military engagements in the region? Um,
2: uh, This committee is right to look uh, carefully at any suggestion of American ground troops given our history. Uh, That's been rocky in that regard. That said, uh, I'd point out that as we heard, we have some 5,000 troops involved in things that, to an outsider, would look very close to combat, Apache helicopters, artillery, uh, special forces teams conducting raids, advisors at the battalion level, essentially calling in strikes, uh, 5,000 troops doing that, along with 3,500 other allies uh, from NATO countries and Australia and such, already in the fight in uh <clears throat> Mosul and we're reinforcing the number of troops. Uh, so it's not a question of having forces on the ground. But isn't regardless.
10: that but isn't it but isn't that a little unfair, isn't, isn't the the question of of of, of Mosul post-invasion is very different than the question of Raqqa and Syria Absolutely. post-invasion.
2: But uh, again, uh, I'm just simply stating that we already have forces on the ground in a more or less quasi-military mission, and we're gonna have to answer questions. We'll have to answer questions on Mosul. Uh, It's a lot easier than Raqqa, but it still will have issues of who goes where in Talifar, in Sinjar Mountain, and and in west and east uh, Mosul, that people are focused on this all of the time. Uh, And the same thing in spades would occur in Raqqa. Again, I'm not saying that you go in and then leave, it's just that major combat units do not assume the responsibility of securing a population and jump some kind of uh, economic and social transformation. That's what we did in uh, Iraq. It's what we're still doing, to some, or we did up until recently in Afghanistan, and it's a highly questionable
10: strategy. Do we, and either one of you can answer this, but maybe I'll pose it to Mr. Derbash. Let's set aside the military objective of crushing ISIL. Does the United States have a national security interest, a vital national security interest as to which one of the surrounding powers ultimately prevails in the future Syrian government? Is it a vital US national security interest as to whether the Turks or the Saudis or the Russians end up having the most influence inside a future Syrian government. Should we stick around just to make sure that ISIS is defeated or should we stick around to try to sort out who has influence? I'd be glad to have both of you answer it, but I'm short on time.
3: I think we have an interest in stability and in good governance and a partner there that we can work with. Uh, It's precise complexion. I'm not sure we have, have a large, large interest, but I would say I would not want it to be Iran and Russia because we already know their complexion. We already know that they will work to undermine U.S. interests. The other countries you you referenced, could I think be constructive partners?
10: I would just, I would just, Mr. general turn it back over. But we would beg for the Syria pre-conflict uh, Syria in which Iran and Russia essentially had proxy control over that uh, government. That would, I think, a lot of us would would would, would wish uh, that, uh, that 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 that's, that that scenario was still uh, the reality on the ground. And so I just, I, I just challenge the notion that in the end, that's a vital national security interest of the United States. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Do you, want to, do you want to answer that,
0: Ambassador?
2: Very quickly, uh, in that happy era, Senator, uh, Iran was not seen <laughs> in the region as being on the offensive. And secondly, Iran's control over uh, Syria was quite limited. Uh, Syria was negotiating with the Israelis. Syria was working closely with the Turks. Uh, Syria was off with the North Koreans developing a uh, nuclear capacity that Iran not only didn't know about, was was shocked to hear. So it was a much more independent Syria, uh, and it was not part of a, essentially, a front against the rest of the region that we have right now.
0: Right. But this, this hearing, I mean, there, there are a lot of great questions being asked, and they're very difficult to answer, are they not? And uh, and that's why I think Syria is in the shape that it's in today. Senator Paul,
11: I'd like to go on record as uh, saying that it'd be a really rotten, no good, bad idea to have ground troops in Syria, and very naive to think you're going to put a thousand troops in there and everybody's going to welcome us very presumptuous to think, oh, we're going to decide who takes Raqqa and who occupies Raqqa. Don't you think the people there would be aghast to think we're 3,000 miles away going to decide who's going to take over Raqqa and who's going to occupy it, that Assad's just going to let us waltz in and that Mr. Bash says, oh, we're just going to remove Assad? The assumptions of all of this, the naivete of thinking, oh my goodness, But here's the other problem. We can win any battle, but when we win, we usually go big. And sort of there have been many people, the Powell Doctrine, go big or don't go. A thousand soldiers. And then the other problem, let's say we could win with a thousand soldiers. Senator Murphy's exactly right. The mantra is always stay, stay, stay. We must stay forever, and if we leave, that's our fault for leaving. There's no exit from a situation like this. But I would say... That when you look at a war like this, let's say we were to go in and defeat those who were there, to defeat ISIS. Do you think that's the end? No, when a big force comes, they're going to shrink away, and they will fight till the end of time. And they will fight against an American target if Americans are the target. This is a war within Islam, and I think we should be supportive and try to amplify those who are trying to defeat this aberration. But let's don't make it our war. Look, there are 200,000 Peshmerga, there are 200,000 Iraq uh, soldiers, there's hundred and some odd thousand in the Syrian army, there's 600,000 in the Turks, and there are 15,000 ISIS, and we've got to go over there to defeat them. I think we ought to think this thing through and think that this won't be the end, this will be the beginning. And I guarantee you, the voices are loud and strong. Everybody says we should have stayed in Iraq. Everybody's still saying we should stay in Afghanistan. Are we going to stay everywhere forever? So I think we need to think through whether or not this needs to be an American-led battle for Raqqa, and that all of a sudden the Kurds are gonna waltz in and Assad's gonna love that, and the people who live in Raqqa are gonna love having the Kurds there. I mean, these are pretty naive assumptions, and we have to be, I think, concerned and think through before we say, oh, we're gonna put 1,000 Americans as a spear, uh, you know, as we go into Raqqa. Perhaps maybe 1,000 people from Raqqa might be better than 1,000 Americans, you know? Um, you know, I'm not opposed to you know putting some money in there to help them with weapons, to help them, but putting 1,000 Americans in there is a really, really terrible idea. You can both respond or chastise me or however you'd like to respond, I'm open to it.
2: It's a hard question to try to push back against, Senator, because we've got a lot of bad experiences. Uh, again, and as one who has argued constantly that we're not welcome when we go on big on the ground, in the Middle East in particular, and that we often have uh, uh, very ambiguous social and economic missions that keep us tied down, and that's wrong, Uh, I find myself, in an almost contradictory position, but I'm very confident of what I'm saying for several reasons. First of all, do we want to destroy, not Al-Qaeda, because we can't destroy Al-Qaeda, you're absolutely right. What we can do is destroy something that looks a lot like a state and an army, because we're good at that. We can break those things, uh, and almost nobody else is really good enough. You're absolutely right about the numbers you cited. And I'm, I think, absolutely right that all of those uh, king's horses and king's men haven't done that well against ISIS. But we're going to
11: to remove Assad and tell Russia to leave. You know, I mean, Assad, look, Assad is winning right now. I mean, I would think he's on the ascendancy, and I would say a couple years ago there was a possibility. I think there's almost no possibility that Assad's going. There's almost no possibility that Russia's going anywhere. How long have they had a base in Syria? I'd say it's pretty important to them. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, I'm just saying it's pretty important to them. The ultimate answer here is a diplomatic one. You need Turkey to get along with the Kurds, which they don't. You need them to want to defeat ISIS more than Assad. You need to get Assad involved in this as well and to agree that it's in his best interest to get rid of uh, um, ISIS, but it can't be removing Assad if you want Assad to help with this at all. But ultimately, all of the region needs to be somehow unified, but that is the problem, that's the conundrum. It's a virtually impossible task, but putting 1,000 Americans in the middle of a battle on Raqqa Is a very bad idea.
2: Uh, To uh, clarify, I never said using American troops or even American diplomacy to get rid of Assad. I think for the moment Assad in the part of Syria where he is, is not part of the solution but it's part of the facts. Uh, I'm talking about using an American force for a very specific military mission that nobody else has seemed to be able to figure out how we're gonna break it.
11: It'll happen without us, it can happen with our support, but it's a really bad idea to put American troops in the assault on Raqqa.
3: May I just add one thing? Absolutely. Yes, sir. You're undoubtedly correct, Senator, that all of the enumerated problems that you laid out cannot be solved by us alone. It certainly cannot be solved by a small number of U.S. forces. It's one of the reasons why we don't – why I don't think the Defense Department alone can be the lead on this. Uh, However, if we resolutely focus on one narrow aspect of our national interest is preventing Raqqa from being a safe haven for ISIS to conduct external operations and plots that could attack Europe and the United States. And I would just commend for the committee's review this article in the New York Times on February 4th that stated that. 40 uh, percent of the so-called lone wolf terrorists that have deployed around the world, actually there was an operational connection between them and ISIS senior leaders in Raqqa. And so we, while we're not going to solve all of the problems, if we can put more pressure either through airstrikes, special operations forces, and small, applica- mil- uh, smaller application of military force to keep a suppression force on ISIS's command and control, we might be able to reduce that number from 40% to 20% to 10% and reduce the possibility that ISIS could conduct attacks that could kill innocent Americans.
0: Thank you, Senator King.
12: Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. This will be very helpful as we as we review what the administration brings to us. I appreciate your testimony today. Ambassador Jeffrey, I'm looking at your written testimony and you, you said a version of it in your verbal testimony. Last page, the U.S. military should press for a stay-behind, train, and liaison presence of several thousand troops in Iraq, supporting both Kurdish Peshmerga and Iraqi regular military forces, Um, and you believe that that's necessary to avoid ISIS rushing back in to, to claim space that is a vacuum in your verbal testimony. You said, let's not repeat the mistake that led to the 2014 rise of ISIS. I want to just drill onto this one for a second. Um, You are not suggesting we should stay in Iraq over their objection or be an occupier, correct?
2: No, not would we be able to?
12: So the idea is we should stay because, you know, what we provide adds value and they would want us to stay. But the political reality of that, um, it it seems to me there's been two things in the last two weeks that are going to make this harder. Uh, The notion that the U.S. president is saying we want to take Iraqi oil will make them— if they take that seriously, a little bit skittish about us staying. And second, a decision to ban Iraqis from coming into the United States, even Iraqis that helped American military when they were there, that's also gonna make Iraqis a little bit skittish about a continued US presence. And I imagine both of these things are probably being used by Iran right now to say, you see, is the US your friend when they won't let Iraqis come into your country? Is the US your friend when their president is saying we're gonna take oil? Don't you think it's pretty important that as a matter of policy that we fix these things if we want to try to convince Iraq that we should be a, a partner going forward uh, rather than somebody that they want to leave after Mosul falls
2: i couldn't agree more on the taking iraq's oil they the Iraqis, if asked, would have to comment on that and say, it's our sovereign, oil. in fact they have. But they're not, they, they, I don't think they really believe that. Now, where you have a point, sir, is uh, on the uh, immigrant decision, the executive order. The thing, and from a policy standpoint, that was I think the only really troubling thing, leave aside the constitutional and the humanitarian, and the other, was including Iraq. Because who were the others? Five failed states in the middle of chaos in Iran. That's why it didn't have much of an impact in the larger Middle East, because those aren't countries like Pakistan and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and Turkey that are uh, major players. Iraq is different though. It's a serious ally of ours. It's a functioning country. It also has an Al-Qaeda and a uh, uh, ISIS presence, but uh, it uh, shouldn't have been on that list. Uh, I think it was a mistake to go on it. We all know the genesis of that list from the seven countries that you couldn't go back to in the last administration, Mm -hmm. and somebody didn't think, Uh, But uh, if there's one thing I'm pretty sure of from my many years watching government is that whatever mistakes this new administration makes in the next four years, Senator, they won't make that specific mistake again.
12: I I pray that that's the case and I think there's still time to fix it and I hope it's fixed either in the courts or here or by an administration that rethinks it. Um, Second, and this this is to follow up on some questions both Senators Portman and Menendez were asking, Canada and President Trump has said he expected Russia's help in defeating ISIS. Uh, I think we would all agree that's been virtually nonexistent thus far. And I think the testimony that you gave in connection with Senator Portman's question is the expectation that that, that will dramatically change, that Russia will be an ally in defeating ISIS. Y- you'd have to be quite a risk taker to take that bet right now, don't you agree?
3: Yeah, I think Russia feels more emboldened, not not uh, not more in the mode of doing what we want them to do.
12: And and President Trump last week said he thought Russia would assist us in keeping Iran in check, and then Russia immediately came out and said, "No, Iran is an ally of ours. We we are trading partners. We're allies, and we want a deeper relationship." So wouldn't you also agree that any expectation that Russia would be a check against Iranian ambitions would be <laughs> pretty darn naive right now.
2: Now that's a different and interesting question, mm-hmm. Senator. Mm-hmm. There may be a little bit of light there. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, and, and I'm not normally a Russian expert, but I've had two track two uh, weeks with the Russians over the last year, mainly on Syria and Iraq and Iran. And uh, there is a difference. There's a way to split them off. Uh, Russia wants to have a lot more influence in the Middle East, uh, but it's backing a hoss, Iran which sees the Middle East as a clash of Shia and Sunni Islam with itself leading the uh, Shia forces and the revolutionary forces of the Islamic forces. But the bulk of the region, which is Sunni uh, Muslim, uh, sees that as an abhorrent threat to their very existence. And that puts Russia in a funny position. I don't think Russia really wants to help Iran and Assad seize all of Syria. I think that they really are halfway serious about the Astana ceasefire, and we ought to be able to build on that. And I think that they won't be able to actively limit what Iran is doing in the region. Relations are too close. But it would be really nice if they could be careful on how and how rapidly they sell uh, weapons to Iran and how uh, strongly they support Iran and the Security Council.
12: And do you predict they will be careful?
2: I predict that there may be a deal there, but I'm not sure. It's going to be hard, and they'll want something in return. All right. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you, sir.
13: <laughs> Senator Isaacson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. As usual, you made a very prophetic statement when you opened the questioning period when you said, after all, we're just really talking about a bunch of proxies fighting over each other. And If you listen to everything that's been said, that really is true. The lives that are on the ground, except for the few of the United States of America, are lives are fighting for a proxy that has nothing to do with the country they're from the religion that they're in. Just wanted to make that observation, makes it different. You know, I've been listening to everybody, I've been thinking, there have been two times in the United States history, when we were attacked and had great loss of life. One was Pearl Harbor, where we lost almost 3,000 Americans on one day. And the other was 9-11 in New York, where we lost 3,000 Americans in one day. And the the result of World War II and the attack on America at Pearl Harbor was we ultimately declared war, both in the Pacific and with the Axis powers in Europe. Since 9-11-2001, we have fought a lot of battles. We've made a lot of declarations. But there's not, to my knowledge, a declaration of the global effort to fight ISIL. Am am I correct there? Say that one more time. Is there a declaration somewhere on the global fight to to, to disrupt ISIL? Any, Any declaration of war or any...
0: No, I think the, oh, the administration has relied upon the O-1 um, saying that they're a derivative of Al-Qaeda. And uh, last week in meeting with the National Security Advisor, we began discussing um, this very topic and maybe a way forward, but go ahead.
13: Well, my reason for ringing it up is just to comment on everything that we've listened to. about everybody. The one thing that's missing from the two great comparisons, which is 9-11 and, and, and Pearl Harbor, is the result after Pearl Harbor was pretty quickly a coalition of of freedom-loving people who joined together in a powerful force to take on the Axis powers and in fact Nazi Germany. I would submit to you that the enemy that we face today, although it doesn't have a territory, doesn't have a uniform, doesn't have a recognized leader, is every bit as lethal, every bit as awful, and every bit as big a threat to America. as as was the World War II effort against Nazi Germany and the Axis powers in the Pacific. Just wanna make the point, we need to make that declaration at some point in time, and we need to find out if our friends are gonna rally to the declaration or sit on the sidelines and watch. Right now, everybody who could be a friend of the United States fighting, with exception, and there are exceptions the Swedes and Afghanistan, there are a lot of countries helping us here, there, and yonder, but in terms of an absolute commitment of the country's commitment to the effort, there, there aren't there, because there, there's not a declaration there, and I'm, I'm doing all the talking, not asking questions, and I'm sorry about that. But I just had to make that point, because it's something we're eventually going to have to do. Mr. Bush, I, you made a statement a minute ago about, or in your speech, about we ought to stop in the Muslim-only order, and then you made a statement that working with Muslim leaders in America, we ought to come to a, a decision. Who are those Muslim leaders? Has, has there any, been any assembly of those Muslim leaders that you know of,
3: or do you know who they are? I think there are a number of leaders of organizations and communities here in the United States uh, who have stepped forward and expressed a willingness to work together with the U.S. government, to work together with law enforcement, who have worked with the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies and departments that are interested in providing funds and resources to those elements that are engaged in countering violent extremism activities and to looking out for those communities.
13: Is there an equivalent in the Muslim world to either the Pope or Billy Graham?
3: Not that I'm aware of.
13: Just one. We need to find that person somewhere, that that title, and that would be the place to start negotiating and bringing them in the conversation. Because I think they have a lot to lose, too. I I mean, I have a number of Muslim friends. I had a Muslim roommate when I was in high school in a foreign exchange program. I have a great respect for the faith. But they they have as much to lose in this war as anybody else has. It's
3: a good point. my dad is here, he's a member of the clergy, and uh, it's interesting to see different religions and the hierarchy that governs them. And, and I think this is, this, you've put your finger on an issue that I think we need to, to work through.
13: My last point is the reference was made during Senator Shaheen's questioning to Vietnam and Iraq as two examples of where when it was over, there wasn't a plan to keep it going and therefore we lost, there was no nation state built of course, in Vietnam, we basically lost, I and mean, we left without winning. But in Iraq, we, we ultimately won with a surge of 130,000 troops that went into Iraq. And then we put in provincial re- reconstruction teams and a State Department and USAID in, in those regions to really bring back Iraq to a civilized society. And we only lost Iraq when we let, took out that remaining small residual force, military force that was there. My only point is, at some point in time, you probably have to make the decision that you're going to have to have some military present over a protected period of time, if in fact victory is important enough to you to send troops to take over that country. Just look at Japan and Germany today, 70 years after World War II. And I thank you for the time, Mr. Chairman.
0: Thank you. If I could, would, would one of y'all respond to Senator Isaacson's premise that ISIS is something that deserves a global, effort uh, equal to what we did uh, in, in World War II?
2: I don't think it's as big a threat to the United States. Uh, in I put ISIS in the same category as um, the Islamic State. Essentially, uh, Sunni extremist uh, radical movements are a threat to the region they are definitely a threat to Europe because they are very—they uh, have very strong, if you will, footholds in Muslim communities in Europe. I don't see them as a threat to us because they don't have that kind of situation that you have, for example, in France, in Belgium, in uh, in Britain, and uh, their ability to strike us other than. Uh, periodically by terrorist attacks uh, will be limited as long as they are not allowed to have a state. And the reason that ISIS has been pretty effective launching these attacks, as um, Jeremy Bash said, is because it has the ability to motivate people around the world. That's why uh, job one in the fight against terror has to be to bash the ISIS state. Uh, I do think though that, uh, and uh, I know you've talked about this before in this committee, that uh, an authorization for the use of military force against ISIS would be a good idea because as you said, Senator, we're still operating on uh, uh, Well at 1.2, but then we've got it back down to one authorization that tracks from the immediate uh, post 9-11 period And uh, I think it would be perhaps helpful to clarify exactly the questions that the senator and many other Americans have raised
0: But marshaling efforts around the world to deal with is not something you would disagree with the the order of magnitude of the threat may be different from your perspective, but...
2: The, the overall mess that is the Middle East, and much of that has one or another Islamic component, certainly Sunni Islamic extremism and Iran, which is an Islamic uh, entity of another sort, uh, all t- taken as a whole has obviously, has obviously been for a long time, look at our military engagements there, and will continue to be a major... Uh, risk for the security of the entire world and it pulls in other countries like Russia today, perhaps China tomorrow, and that's a danger too. So it is a very big priority for our uh, foreign policy and our national security to try to get the region under control. I think in that sense, it's a major effort, but I I wouldn't say it's not a war on a specific thing the way it was in World War II. May
3: may I just add, Mr. Chairman, may, may I just add, We do have a global coalition, and I wouldn't want to leave anyone with the impression, particularly our coalition partners, that we don't think that they're there in the fight with us. They very much are, they're taking fire, and they're doing some very important things alongside our diplomats, our intelligence officers, and our troops. That's point one, but point two, I think it is worth it, since we've just come through an election, to refresh that, Mm -hmm. and to refresh that statement, refresh that declaration with Congress in the lead. I think it's very appropriate. Thank you,
0: Senator Grant.
7: Thank you, Chairman Corker. I have um, three basic lines of questioning. One will simply continue that, which is to follow up on uh, one of your opening uh, statements, Mr. Bash, to, to ask about uh, the global affiliates of ISIS that have pledged allegiance uh, to the caliphate, and, and I want to explore with you a little bit what that really means, how much control there really is, what sort of coordination there really is. Um, second, I'll ask about how we prevent Iran from expanding their hegemony um, into Syria uh, after the fall of Raqqa and into Um, Iraq after the fall of uh, Mosul, and then third, um, a number of my colleagues have covered and you have spoken to directly a number of President Trump's unhelpful um, statements about seizing Iraq's oil, um, the impact of um, his saying he would reinstate torture, and then most importantly, the executive order uh, banning refugees from seven majority Muslim countries. Um, But let's take those in order, if we could. First. Um, in the Sahel, and area I uh, paid a fair amount of attention to as chair of the Africa subcommittee my first four years, and in Southeast Asia region uh, others uh, have raised, um, you have ISIS affiliates. Um, but my superficial impression is that they are um, not tightly aligned, not funding each other, not sharing technology and weaponry and training, but perhaps I'm missing a core point. Um, you did in your opening, and I think it's important, uh, emphasize that Australia has been our ally in virtually every undertaking in the last century, that NATO is an absolutely crucial partner. Um, And I just wanted to give you, uh, Mr. Bash and uh, Ambassador Jeffrey, uh, a moment to speak to the global consequences and the importance of reaffirming our coalition partners.
3: Well, I think the the specific operational ties vary in different situations. Actually, if you look at, I read through that, Statement that the White House released last night about the terror attacks that have, in their view, been underreported, um, and actually, so many of those were those that were inspired or enabled by ISIS's propaganda, their incitement, and their ideas, and and that is their main weapon. That's their main export. That's how they do their business. And by the way, it's it's pretty effective. Mm-hmm.
2: Let me tackle the uh, containing of Iran. The first thing we have to do. And this would be a change from uh, the last administration is to recognize that the job of that Iran is a problem in the region, and that America, with its friends and allies in an economy of force way, needs to push back. Uh, And that'll be that'll that'll set the stage for uh, cooperation with a lot of friends who believe the same way. But specifically, there is a ceasefire that the Russians, the Iranians, and the Turks, and the Syrians put together uh, for Syria, the Astana one. Uh, the Turks are willing to live with that even though their side lost, basically. Uh, the Russians put it together and have some interest in it. The, Syrian, uh, the uh, Syrians, the Assad government, doesn't really like it. It wants to retake the whole country on the back of uh, uh, Iranian surrogates and Russian airplanes. Uh, And Iran is probably uh, there with Syria. But I think that the first thing is we should embrace that We should put people in to those negotiations, bring in the Europeans, and put pressure on Russia as part of our relationship with Russia that we want that thing to hold, also with Turkey. And I think that there's a real chance of that happening because retaking the rest of Syria is not an easy job, and the Russians seem not to want to get bogged down in Syria despite their uh, military victory in Aleppo. In the rest of the region, you have uh, Uh, a situation in Yemen that's quite critical. Uh, You have a situation that's brewing in Afghanistan with Iran. You have a situation uh, that's relatively quiet, but it's not good in Lebanon. Uh, But throughout the region, basically, uh, it should be clear that uh, the United States is going to work in various ways against the expansion of Iranian influence. And uh, that's totally aside from the nuclear agreement.
7: I could not agree with you more uh, that containing uh, Iranian uh, aggression um, attempts at expanding their hegemony is a key goal for our foreign policy, both in uh, our engagement after uh, Mosul is retaken uh, and in how we act uh, in the region. Let me just ask a quick uh, question. Since you both identified ISIS uh, propaganda, their ability to reach out and radicalize as their most effective weapon, um, does it not simply strengthen and expand the reach of that weapon? to have an executive order in place um, that, correctly or not, is being characterized throughout the Muslim world as an anti-Muslim ban. Mr. Bash.
3: It's already been utilized by ISIS sympathizers on Telegram, one of the social media entities I referenced earlier, and one of the arguments, just to put a, a little bit of a sharper focus on it, is ISIS has always said, hey, let's look at how America treats its own Muslim populations, and you can judge America that way, and then when we don't allow back into the country lawful permanent residents, who are of the Muslim faith back into the country, that they are legally here, and we don't allow others to be reunited with their families, we don't allow the tens of thousands of students who are studying in our, our own universities and colleges to actually be here or to travel home and come back, I should say, then I think it actually validates, in some ways, ISIS's claim.
7: Well, Ambassador, I I appreciate your also observing that Iraq should not have been included. I think it is a a pressing security threat for us to have partners in an ongoing fight now not allowed to come here uh, for training, for consultation, those who kept our troops alive on the battlefield not able to come home. And It's my hope we'll find ways to address this. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: So if I could, so I agree with that, but are you saying the others should have in making that statement? And are you agreeing with that? No, no, Mr. Bash. I'm sorry, I don't understand the question, Mr. Chairman. Well the, que- the statement he made was a Iraq should not have been included. I agree with that. Well, but that that sets the premise the others should have and I just want I just no, to
3: I, I think the construct of the ban was ill-conceived. I think banning travel from entire populations without regard to specific intelligence and terrorism threats, I think was was a mistake for reasons that we've talked about. So my recommendation, would be to look at vetting procedures, I think that's always appropriate, but not to do it in the context of a, a travel ban.
14: Senator Gardner. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to both of you for your endurance today. It's a, a heavily attended committee hearing, which is a very good thing, I think, for the committee. So thank you very much for being a part of it. Mr. Bash, I want to clarify, or follow up a little bit, the answer you gave to Senator Young talking about uh, the Muslim faith, and and uh, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so I want to make sure I understood what you said. In talking about it, I think uh, the question about the the most people, the predominant majority of people in the Muslim faith, are peace and obje- reject terrorism, and uh, overwhelming number do. But you said what we, when he asked what more should be done? I think Mr. Bash, you said something about. Uh, we need those to share. We need people to share a proper view of Islam. Could you talk a little bit more about that, what you mean, who you mean, uh, and uh, what can be done about that?
3: As I've traveled in, in the Middle East and I've, I was there uh, not long ago uh, speaking with leaders, particularly in the Gulf, I mean, their view, and, and I, I credit this, is that is that what ISIS has done successfully and to some degree what the supreme leader has done in Iran on the Shia side is is perverted Islam and, and perverted the religion, done things in the name of the religion mm. that in the view of more moderates in the region is, is not consistent with the way they think right. uh, Islam should be practiced and and i think we should listen to those people and i think we should empower them and work look for ways to have their view of their own religion but isn't that something be put we've been out.
14: trying to do since uh, you know, over a decade ago we've been looking for those voices trying to strengthen those voices trying yes. to find a platform for those voices so why have all those efforts failed if we still need to do it
3: i don't i don't i wouldn't we have been trying to do it. We need to do it more. I wouldn't put in the binary, it's worked or it's failed. There are places where it's worked. There are places where it hasn't worked, and I think we need to obviously expand the efforts so that it works in, in additional places. Well, I, again, I mean, this is
14: something that we've been talking about. We've been pursuing at the Global Engagement Center. This conversation has been held multiple times before this committee of how do we find those moderate voices, those reasonable voices that agree with the vast majority of people in the faith. Uh, that reject this. And so uh, I, I would love to follow up more with how we can do a better job because uh, I, I do put it in the terms of how we succeeded or have we failed because uh, if it's still happening, if ISIS is still radicalizing people, uh, if their ideology is spreading, uh, then we haven't succeeded. So uh, anyway, I think we could follow up a little bit more on that. I want to talk a little bit about uh, this. Uh, Ambassador Jeffries, in your statement, you said it's difficult to see how Washington could pursue anti-ISIS operations in Syria without Turkish bases and other cooperation. Can you talk a little bit about the Turkish-Russia activities and what that means for the US?
2: Turkey has had a 250 year running conflict with Russia to its north. Uh, Russia's expansion in the 16th through 19th century came uh, at the expense of Turkish territories to a significant degree in the Balkans and Crimea and other places, the Caucasus. And uh, so there's a deep suspicion, and it's a classic case of you've got two major powers in one area, they tend not to get along. Uh, the, that said, there are energy ties and other ties with Russia. Russia is a big player. Turkey knows it. Uh, the current far started, of course, with um, uh, the uh, fight in Syria, where Russia and uh, uh, Turkey were on opposite sides. Uh, you know the history. Uh, Turkey shot down the Russian fighter that uh, went into Turkish territory. Uh, strong reaction, but still a, a, a limited reaction on the part of Putin uh, and. Uh, a military offensive that Putin supported uh, in Aleppo against the forces that Turkey was backing. Turkey was backing very strongly uh, forces who wanted to overthrow Assad. Some of them were people we wouldn't want to work with, but a lot of them in the Free Syrian Army were people we were also working with. We cooperated with Turkey uh, to train many of those people. Uh, Then uh, at the end of the day, Turkey could not, uh, Turkey wanted to do a no-fly zone. It ultimately, and they wanted to do it with us. They wanted to have a no-drive zone. They eventually did it themselves, and they seized a huge chunk of uh, Northern Syria, uh, partially to block the Kurds, but also to go after ISIS and also to put pressure on Assad. They had had a three-way, purpose in that, but they were ever more disappointed that we were not in the fight with them in any sort of way. They didn't see a policy towards Syria and they didn't see a policy towards Iran. And frankly, I think they were right. And at the end of the day, they were presented with a fait accompli. Their side lost the battle of Aleppo The uh, Western-Syria battle was basically over, and to uh, save what they could of their free Syrian army forces, many of whom are still under arms and coordinating with the Turks, uh, they decided to work this deal with the Russians, Um, but uh, uh, the Astana uh, ceasefire, but the Turks are very unhappy at Assad's violation of this. They uh, keep on uh, saying, at least for the record, that they are opposed to Assad, they think he needs to go, and uh, they're uncomfortable with this uh, second-class status that they've been given with Russia, and thus I think they're very willing to work with us. And I see all kinds of signs So no of,
14: threat to U.S. interests in Syria or Iraq as a result of the Russian-Turkey uh, operations?
2: Uh, no. Uh, no, I don't. I, I think that this, if Turkey feels forced into this. They would love to have a situation where they could— I don't want to paint too— where they could play us off against mm-hmm. the Russians. We won't like it, but it's better than where we are now because right now there's no game. They just basically have to go along with the Russians.
14: And I'm out of time, but at some point uh, we could follow up a little bit more about ISIS and Jakarta and other the attacks in Jakarta in 2016, Southeast Asia. I think it's important that we view ISIS uh, and this issue not just as a Middle East or Europe or even a distant threat to the US as I think uh, somebody had said uh, through attacks, but also talk about what's happening in Southeast Asia. So,
0: Senator Rubio's uh, walking down. If you would like to filibuster by asking that. Well, question. I would love to ask that question. Okay, Let's so talk a little like bit about Senator Southeast Carden Asia. If the does not object, then we'll, <laughs> and we'll
14: I'll, let. I'll take go okay, go ahead. Thank you. Just, just again, just I'll make it quick. Just talk about Southeast Asia, talk about uh, the, the threat that ISIS poses, and about 600 known fighters in Southeast Asia right now. Uh, we have counterterrorism efforts in place. Could you talk are those sufficient? Do we need to do more? How is our partnership on counterterrorism efforts? proceeding.
3: I, I think uh, we could always do more in the field of intelligence cooperation, law enforcement training. Uh, we have had some good experience with countries in Southeast Asia uh, countering the, the Al-Qaeda threat in the aftermath of 9-11. Of course, that's you referenced Indonesia. That's where Hambali was. And uh, and working with allies and, and key partners there, we, uh, we successfully successfully uh, took him down. Um, again, this is a place where I think Australia could be critical because, as as uh, as you talk to officials in Canberra, one of the things that they're very concerned about is the ISIS threat in Indonesia, um, in in uh, in Jakarta and in Bali and elsewhere, and they can play a very constructive role in working with us there. Thank you,
13: thank you, Mr. Chairman, thank you. you ready to go?
15: Thank you, and I uh, yes, thank you both for being here. Busy day, busy night. It's a long night. Um, and I'm, I apologize if this has been asked before. Let me just ask uh, you know, your opinions on the following, and that is, there's been a lot of talk, some out there arguing, well, you know Assad is a bad individual, but he's someone he's better than the alternative. I've often said that, uh, irrespective of what happens in this conflict, as long as given both the nature of the Assad regime and everything that's transpired, that as long as Assad is in power, or those close to him are in power, given what has occurred in Syria. It'll be very, there will always be, uh, Syria will always be ripe for a Sunni resistance uh, to his rule, um, that it's difficult to go to someone who's had their family slaughtered, uh, who has faced deep oppression, and somehow ever get them to fold into a national unity under the rule of an individual responsible for these sorts of horrific acts. Uh, Do you share that view that it will be very difficult, if not impossible, for Syria to ever be peaceful and unified as long as someone with as much blood in his hands as Assad is in power?
3: I strongly agree with that statement, Senator Rubio. Uh, Assad has used chemical weapons to kill at least uh, 1,400 of his own uh, civilians, including several hundred children. Uh, As we noted earlier in the hearing, we had to witness on our own televisions in a manner that was inappropriate for young children to be in the living room when these scenes were being shown, the way the Assad forces were liquidating the city of Aleppo and, uh, and slaughtering civilians and making it impossible for relief organizations to be there. So I agree 100 percent with your statement.
2: Um, the Assad system Is exactly what you described, Senator, because as Jeremy said, uh, it is absolute brutality against the entire uh, population, with some exceptions, of Syria. Anybody who gets in the way gets thrown in jail, gets tortured, and a mass slaughter of hundreds of thousands of civilians, poison gas, all of that. Uh, It's possible to see, to imagine scenarios where Assad is left in power as a figurehead as part of some kind of compromise that countries in the region and outside of the region agree to uh, as long as the system goes away. But as long as that system, which only goes on one speed, which is oppression, full out, continues, you're not going to have peace in Syria. And without peace in Syria, you're not going to have peace in the region.
15: Yeah. I, I guess the broader point I've always been driving, and it sounds like you both either directly agree or largely agree with, is that there are a lot of people that talk about this notion that Assad is terrible, but he's better than the alternative. And I guess my argument is, as long as Assad is there, given everything that's transpired, you are basically providing the fuel and the conditions, even if ISIS is wiped out. You already see Jabhat al-Nusra, or whatever their new name now is, stepping into that void. In essence, given everything that's occurred, uh, there will always be a Sunni resistance that will tend towards radicalization in some cases if if no other alternative is available. And I, I just make the argument to people that Assad is one of the reasons why we have an ISIS, he is, not, um, he is not a counter to ISIS, he is in many ways one of the reasons that accelerated the rise in, of ISIS and those radical Sunni elements uh, within Syria. The, I know I'm running out of time and I know you've had a long hearing, so let me just ask you this, there's also some discussion out there about the U, basically figuring out a way for the United States uh, to leverage or to peel Russia off of their alliance with Iran and in particular work jointly together on trying to defeat ISIS in Syria and beyond. But uh, I guess my point is how realistic do you think that sort of strategy is and what would we have to give up in your estimation in other parts of the world in order to entice Vladimir Putin to both cut ties with Iran or at least the alliance they've established with Iran, be albeit an alliance of convenience, and also become more active participants in the fight against ISIS. How, poss- how realistic is that strategy? which I know others have flirted with, and what would we probably have to give up in other parts of the world to to make that something that that Putin would find enticing.
3: Senator, the United States of America tested that proposition over the last six months, and the test failed. Uh, we tried to enlist them in a productive manner in Syria, and and their military operations were, were imprecise, counterproductive, and they did things in the name of counterterrorism that actually were counterproductive to our efforts. In other words, taking out the moderate forces that could be a, a lead behind force in Syria. So, so I think I agree with the the premise of your question, and I don't believe that we could do a grand bargain with Russia where we outsource the ISIS fight or, or somehow enlist their effort to moderate Iran's influence?
2: Uh, specifically on the ISIS fight, absolutely not. Other than carpet bombing civilians, uh, there's nothing they really can do militarily in this campaign. The larger question of Iran Assuming we have what I would consider a healthy strategy towards Iran, which we didn't in the last administration, they're working on it now in this administration, then there are areas where you can try to peel off Russia because Russian and Iranian interests are not identical. But that is a longer term effort and it shouldn't start with giving them any uh, invite to uh, the Raqqa battle. Good. Good.
0: Hey, if I could highlight again, uh, Russian troops are, are not even trained to deal with the type of issue that we have in, in Raqqa, is that correct? I mean, all they can really do is what you just mentioned, carpet bomb. Uh, they're, 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 they're of no use, are they, relative to uh, a ground effort in Raqqa? But
2: They had some very high-end forces that we would call Special forces, but they're closer to the 75th Ranger uh, Regiment. That is highly trained light infantry, and they did deploy some of those people at times, which is why I cited that earlier on my argument that we need to put some uh, elite ground troops in. And those forces are pretty good, but they're nothing in numbers or quality like what we have between the United States and our NATO allies. We've got tens of thousands of people who can do that and who have been doing this for a decade in Afghanistan and Iraq.
0: Senator Cardin.
1: Well, let me thank uh, you for your testimony. Um, As I was listening to the members uh, ask their questions and your responses, I think there's general consensus here that we don't want to see U.S. military in a sustained ground combat operation. There's different views here as to whether it's appropriate for us to interject our special forces and how we interject our special forces or how do we deal with the uncertainty of what occurs where you may need to use U.S. forces for rescue or might need U.S. forces for an urgent need. Uh, And I say that because President Obama submitted an AUMF that restricted our, our combat to no sustained ground combat operations. And we all scratched our heads at the time and say, what does that mean? And I agreed with the chairman that it was impossible for us to get Unity uh, to pass an AUMF. We have disagreements whether the 2001 AUMF covers the operations today, and that's never gonna be fully resolved because there's no way to, to, to resolve that, whether it covers it or not. The president's operating under it. And uh, there's no way of really legally challenging other than through the, the appropriation process, which is a tool that won't be used because um, uh, it affects the safety of our ground, of our of our military. So I mention that because, Mr. Chairman, we're going to have to revisit this at some point because I I do think there is general consensus against us using combat troops on a sustained basis in Syria or Iraq. Uh, that that would be counterproductive. Or, by the way, in the other regions in which ISIS is now operating, uh, that would be, I think, looked at as counterproductive because it would be used as a recruitment tool, would make it more difficult for us to govern after the combat operations are over and you're not gonna be able to hold unless you have the local will and capacity to hold regions. So, For all those reasons, we have to be cautious We want to get rid of ISIS. We want to get rid of a terrorist, but we have to have a game plan. And Mr. Chairman, you've been one of the first to point out that that may not have been true in our Libya campaign. We didn't have uh, an idea what was going to happen after we got involved in Libya. Uh, So I I just make that as a word of caution. And I would welcome uh, our two witnesses, and maybe we'll ask this for the record. How would you um, frame an AUMF? where Congress is weighing in to support the operations, recognizing that many of us would be reluctant to an open-ended AUMF uh, because we believe we have responsibility to authorize sustained operations and we're not prepared to give that congressional authority today. So it'd be interesting to see. Uh, But as far as the The the, the use of our military, uh, I couldn't agree with you more. They have the capacity, the unique capacity, no other country can do what we can do. Whether it's our combat troops or whether it's our special forces troops or whether it's our people that are in the intelligence in the military, they do the best. And without their participation, it's hard to imagine we could come to any type of successful completion to what's happening today against ISIS. So uh, I, I think there's probably more agreement than disagreement. But the question is, how does the Senate, how does the Congress weigh in is a much more difficult uh, uh, assignment. If you have thoughts on that, I'd be willing to listen.
2: Um, As an advocate for non-sustained ground troops, Mm -hmm. and of course, definitions are everything. What are ground troops? Is it a uh, uh, forward observer team? Is it a special forces uh, raid? I'm talking about uh, essentially uh, a number of maneuver battalions, five to 800, strong American units participating in ground fire and maneuver. Uh, I think that if we can do uh, operations without that, uh, we should, because we're in basically internal conflicts and we want to, for many reasons, put the burden on the locals. Uh, But as much local as necessary uh, as possible, as much American engagement as necessary, and we come very close to that, Senator, with the 10,000 troops we have in uh, uh, Afghanistan. They get involved in more fighting than the folks do in in Iraq that we have, the 5,000. The second thing is I'm troubled by this artificial line that special forces can go out and do raids and shoot people up and get shot in the process, and artillery can fire, and Apache helicopters can uh, fire rockets, but that that's not ground combat, but that a a US tank company cannot lead an assault on a very dug-in ISIS force. Uh, If we could do this with somebody else, fine, but let's not wait. The Mosul battle has been going on, and all in all, it's successful, but it's been going on for three and a half months, and we still have to take the, uh, the hottest part of the city in the West. And there's a cost to... Doing these things maybe will be okay, but every month you get bogged down in a conflict, there's a risk that something will happen, an ally will fall out, a new development will come in. Uh, there's a, something to be said for rapidity in any operation, diplomatic or military. In terms of an authorization for the use of military force, I think that the um, <clears throat> there were two elements, if I remember, because I, I gave testimony either here or in the House on, on the uh, authorization, and the two concerns were, first of all, the limitation on uh, sustained uh, use of ground troops. uh, I think that needs to be worded differently because um, it just, it it was troubling from many standpoints. We're all looking
1: at new languages these days, so it's. um, The
2: the other thing was, there was a, uh, uh, I I, I don't know whether it was a geographic, it was everywhere in the world and that was a little bit troubling too. If you're going to authorize the use of military force, as this chamber knows very well, uh, dating back to 1964, uh, you really got to be careful what you authorize.
1: And and then lastly, there was the challenge of whether this would be the exclusive use of the authority or whether we we would repeal 2001 or whether 2001 would still stay in. So there were different, uh, and whether it be have a sunset or not have a sunset. There was many open issues uh, about how we would do this. So it was not free from challenges, but the bottom line is, what is the appropriate authorization for the use of force by Congress?
3: And maybe I'll add as a coda, Senator Cardin, if you just tell the Defense Department, give us some options, the last slide is gonna be the low, medium, and high option. And and I, I sense the struggle here among all of us to figure out what's the right numbers, what's the right missions, what's the right capabilities we wanna have in country. And my, I think the premise of this hearing and my recommendation would be don't make that decision in isolation. Think about the comprehensive approach. What else are we doing diplomatically? Who else is with us in the fight? What's the nature and capability of the ground forces of local partners that we would be employing? How good are and precise are our airstrikes? What kind of intelligence pre- precision do we have? I think if you look at the entire picture, that will inform the low, medium, and high decision that the Defense Department will inevitably come forward with. Thank you, Thank you all.
0: Thank you both. I, uh, of course, the, the authorization is something that I, I think we will be dealing with here in the, in the next couple months. I think the first step as it relates to Syria is, <clears throat> is to have the administration lay out a plan and for them to come before us and and talk about the details of that, and uh, I think this hearing has been really, really useful in that regard. Uh, back to the AUMF component, I mean, that would then help us as it relates to Syria itself, but then there is this global issue that we're dealing with that uh, in each circumstance uh, could develop into something very, very different. So just for what it's worth, I, I know that you had some things on the floor. I'm not sure there's that much unanimity on on uh, what we should do. There was a lot of conflicting thoughts. I think there are many people that believe that when you authorize the military, you should just authorize the military. And then I think there are others that feel like there should be more of a management there relative to what we do. But again, here today, the hearing is really about what are we going to do right now in Syria? And I know that's what uh, you know Mattis has been charged to do my guess is Tillerson will be highly involved in that. and I, and I think this whole issue that you both are alluding to relative to, to ground troops, um, the not to be pejorative the last administration's reticence to cause much of that to occur. Um, has uh, no doubt affected where we are today. I mean, we keep looking at all of the, I don't really see a force on the ground by itself that's capable on one hand of dealing with this. We've got elements that don't particularly get along well with each other. Um, And so it is going to be interesting as they walk through this process to try to weave the Turks the Arab-supported Turks, uh, the Arab-supported Kurds, the Kurds, uh, the Russian-Iran component. Um, Trying to weave that together into something that's coherent um, to me is going to be very, very difficult, and I think uh, this hearing has been most useful in describing that. And I I love uh, describing those complications, but Jeffrey, if you would, if you were going to if you were the person waving and and saying describing how it's going to be most focused which of those areas would it be
2: really quickly one uh, we wrung our hands about the balkans for 3 years because of exactly all of those right. same complications right. and then we acted and suddenly they all are almost all of them melted away they melted away good enough for our government work and i think The Middle East is more difficult. We're in a very uh, dangerous situation with multiple uh, foes, with with multiple complications. I think that uh, if Iran understands we're going to contain Iran, Russia understands that we're not gonna try to throw it out of the Middle East, but that we're also gonna watch carefully what it does in the region. Turkey believes that we're not gonna uh, develop this relationship with what they think is a potentially existential threat, the YPD branch of the PKK in Syria, uh, and uh, that the Iraqis know that we are not going to try to use them against Iran, but that we also don't want to go away. I think that bit by bit we can uh, put this back together, because we have the military, we have the political, we have the economic power, and our, when you add up all of our allies and friends in the area, we haven't talked much about Israel, about Saudi Arabia, about all these other countries, they're capable of being mobilized for some kind of plan like this. And I think it's eminently doable uh, over time, but we've got to stop, start with uh, whacking ISIS and uh, making clear that uh, Iran is somebody that we're not going to let take over the region and it'll flow from that.
0: I think that's a good way to close the hearing. Um, if you would uh, answer questions, we're going to leave them open until the close of business tomorrow, uh, for Thursday. I know you have other things that you do during the day, but if you can answer those as quickly as possible, we'd appreciate it. Thank you both. I think there's been an outstanding hearing, and I think it's caused everyone up here to think about this in a, in a little different way, And uh, and we'll have, hopefully, a something that uh, comes out of the administration that can be supported and can be successful uh, with the help of your testimony today. So thank you. The meeting's adjourned.